Welcome to the Outdoor Mentor, where the star of the show is the mentee. I'm your host, Colonel Retired Mike Abel, and every show I will be interviewing someone I took on a hunting, fishing, scouting, hiking, or camping adventure. It might be someone new to the outdoors, or it might be someone experienced who is trying something new. The goal of this show is to inspire people who want to get started, or who want to expand their outdoor experience to do so, by listening to someone who's already took that leap. This show is not experts talking, but the people who took the leap and jumped into the outdoors personally. Today's guest is someone I met through the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources Field to Fork program. I got a call last fall from someone who helped teach a deer hunting field to fork that the department was short hunting mentors for the field exercise or the hunting portion of the field to fork and asked if I was interested. Of course I said yes. And that's how I met my guest today, Joel. Uh, before we start the interview, let me say that I normally find the time to meet with folks to do this podcast in person, but, uh, due to circumstances we find ourselves in today, uh, Joel and I are doing this podcast over the phone. So I apologize in advance if the sound quality is not as good as it has been in previous shows. Joel, welcome to the show, brother. Tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. My name is Joel Bryant. And I live in Lexington, Kentucky with my wife, Erica, and I have four kids, two at home and two that are out of the house. And I'm originally from central Florida. So I've been up in Kentucky about almost eight years. And, uh, yeah, I met Mike through the Field to Fort program and uh, just glad to be on the podcast. And hopefully I can help somebody out. Yeah. So, um, you know, you left out your age and I'm older than you. So I'm good enough. I'm, you know, I, you shouldn't feel old to tell everybody <laughs> to tell everybody your age, since yeah. I, I I got a few years on you. Um, but if you could tell everybody uh, how old you are and what motivated you to start hunting at, at this point in your life. Yeah, yeah, I'm 46 years old, and I uh, so I think first and foremost, my my wife and I probably I don't know it's probably been about three years ago we were having a discussion about sustainable food and, and how we were trying to to purchase food and, and meat specifically that was uh, that we knew where it came from and and I, and I think for us it's it was a real important for us to to understand where our food was coming from and that it was coming from a whole wholesome sustainable source and and the thing we started talking about is hunting and and how that might fit into to what we were doing you know from our food intake and it kind of fit I started following some folks on social media, watching some programs on YouTube and so forth, just, just to try and understand this hunting thing. But, you know, to take it a little bit back, Mike, I've kind of wanted to, to hunt all my life. I mean, it's kind of been in me a little bit where I've, I've always wanted to do it, but I never really took the opportunity to, to actually learn it or to, to get acclimated to doing something like that. I mean, my, my father wasn't really into hunting and that, that's fine. I mean, he just didn't, didn't want to do that. But my grandfather and, and generations before me have always been hunters. And, 
So it's always been something that I've been interested in and, and something that I've always wanted to do. So here I am, 46 years old, and I'm, I'm learning to do it. Well, you know, it was, it, there's, some, um, there's some apprehension when you sign up to blind mentor for the Department of Fish and Wildlife as well. And uh, I, I see a guy close to my age who's, who's you know, upright, fit, bright-eyed and smart walking my way i was like thank god man they gave me somebody you know <laughs> i you know i it's i would have mentored humpty dumpty i mean i would have done the best i could if i had to you know backpack in a, a, a paraplegic honestly i swear i would but i knew when i met you i'm like we're gonna have a good time so that was really cool um uh that you know the old saying the, ju- the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step so probably the barrier uh, in my mind, for people that are getting started, is what was the leap for you? What was the first step? Yeah, the first step for me, and I think was just assessing, you know, wh- what did I want to hunt and, and how did I want to approach this? You know, I did, I'm kind of analytical in nature. I mean, I, I like to, to kind of see all this in a, in a broad scope and and what what is this hunting about and so i started doing research i mean like i said earlier i started following people on on instagram and different social media platforms watching youtube and just trying to understand what i'd like to hunt it was very to me you talk about barriers to entry you know for me one of the big barriers to entry you know a lot of people deer hunt that's probably one of those popular things here in kentucky and that was really intimidating to me to even the thought of killing such a large animal uh, so, so I started going down the road of, of trying to learn how to turkey hunt, and that that was kind of the the first step for me is is really just doing that research. I had an old shotgun that uh, my dad had given me, probably hadn't been fired in twenty years. I went down to the gun shop and had them show me how to clean it, and you know it was just just took that approach, and that's kind of how I, you know, my first steps or first step or first steps. Yeah, so you had the courage to strike out on your own, which is, I would say, probably pretty rare. That's that's an interesting deal that you said, hey, man, you know, big game. You know, people look at deer and they don't really realize you, that's a big game animal. It's the most popular big game animal um, in the world. But you decided, hey, um, I'll probably try to hunt the hardest animal on the planet to kill, <laughs> yeah. which is the wild turkey. Uh, I tell people if they could smell, we'd have to shoot them 600 yards away with a rifle because their eyesight and their hearing and, and their, you know, wariness is just off the charts. Um, how'd you get hooked up with the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resource Field of Fort class? Yeah, so I saw a uh, advertisement on, I started following them on Facebook and then they had an advertisement for the Field of Fort class. And I kind of, it's one of those where you see it and you kind of think about it overnight and I'm like, yeah, I, I probably need to sign up for that. That would be probably interesting to, to be a part of. So I signed up and, and attended that, and uh, that was that was a you know, great event to to uh, be a part of. Where where exactly did you take the class? Yeah, I took that class here in Lexington. I think they did a couple last year, and so I took the one that they did here in Lexington. And as a follow up, we actually ended up doing a mentored hunt out in Western Kentucky. The, uh, it was on some NWTF property that um, Kentucky Fish and Wildlife has some arrangement with them uh, to be able to have access to. But it was uh, overall the experience was was really neat. They, they folks at Kentucky Fish and Wildlife are really uh, good good people to uh, to know and to to 
you know, just to be a part of that uh, field of fork, uh, you know, class was was a really neat experience. Yeah, there there are three, you know, um, their recruiting retention and reactivation uh, segment of their information education um, department is a really thoughtful, youthful, um, hardworking group, and uh, I I find you know nothing but good things to say about those folks. So um, you took the class and. I suppose, how long was it before, you know, you and I met on the range that day? Yeah, so I, I took, so the, the second field to fork was the, the deer archery, and I, I did that at the end of the summer. So it was probably, gosh, I'm thinking it was like August or something like that, because it was extremely hot outside, and uh, and we were, we were out, did some did some outside work there. It was uh, at the Fern Creek Sportsman's Club up, in, up near your, your neck of the woods in Louisville. But, uh, but yeah, so, and we, we, I believe we met in, in October. Yeah. Yep. As my buddies that, that, um, you know, Front Creek Sportsman's Club really has a culture of, of giving back and, um, wanting to help, um, bring new sportsmen and women into the fold. And, um, I'm old friends with the folks over there that teach these classes and, and, um, they don't always reach out to me but whenever they have a vacancy that they're like oh we need an extra guy to help teach or mentor they reach out and this was a blessing that they did um so we showed up we met on the range and um immediately the department hands us a crossbow and says have at it um how how natural did the crossbow feel did it feel like a weapon you're comfortable with and 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 how do you think that went there on the range yeah so handing you know got the crossbow it, it, this was only my second time in my life that I ever even touched a crossbow. So that, that was interesting. But one of the things that I think is, is so important that I, I felt like was really value added is the mentorship that you, and there were some others there that were explaining how, how to use the sights and how to, to operate this because it was so different. I mean, I'd shot a shotgun or rifle. I shot, you know, firearms before, but never a, or only had shot a crossbow once and it really wasn't explained to me how to do it. So I, it was brand new. And, but, but I think it was something that's easy to pick up for someone that may be a little apprehensive or, or to, to a vertical bow or maybe even a firearm. Uh, you know, this is a, a kind of an in-between that to me was fairly easy to pick up. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really honestly shoots like a firearm. Um, but you know, there's no recoil, there's no, you know, muzzle blast. So it, it, it really honestly, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of using them for folks like me who are, you know, long serving accomplished hunter still has good back and good shoulders and good elbows. Um, but I truly believe that the crossbow is the entry weapon, um, for, for new hunters because the archery season is really long. And, um, to, to the point, I believe that, and I enjoy mentoring so much. I went out and bought a crossbow this year just to take new hunters hunting. And if you and I hunt and you're not ready with your, I know you're working on a vertical bow, but if you're not ready, I got a crossbow for you, brother. Yeah. 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 And you, you talk about barriers to entry. I mean, I think if you're, if you're looking to get into, uh, and that's what, this is one of the things for deer hunting for me, you know, I do, I have a rifle, but deer, the rifle season is, is kind of condensed and it's not very long 
and consider it when you compare it to the archery season. So for, for me, you know, I need to have, because I work a full-time job, I need to have some flexibility. So that avenue that I'm headed down to me, it, I'll probably end up being more of a bow hunter than, than a rifle hunter when the day's done. But even when we talk about whitetail. Yeah, it, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. It's something, you know, I go to all the fish and wildlife commission meetings and I have a relationship with, with every single commissioner, including the, the leaders of the department. And it's one of the things that, you know, when we continue to expand opportunity in the archery season, that very condensed rifle season causes folks to have to take vacation if they're really going to get a couple of days, you know, because there's only three weekends in the rifle season and there's bad weather or, you know, um, your son or daughter has a fall sport where they're doing really good. You, you may find even in those three weekends, you get one day. And, you know, for a rifle hunter, that one day is just, that's almost not fair. So, um, although I, I'm, you know, I'm going, I've gone on record multiple times saying I'm opposed for experienced hunters to use crossbows. I, I think it is a wonderful, wonderful device for new hunters and youth because the season's so much, so much longer. So, um, yeah. we, uh, uh, we got hooked up. We got you sighted in. Um, felt like you were ready to go. So we did uh, um, kind of a discussion on the back of the tailgate um, about sight picture and uh, your point of aim. Uh, were you comfortable with that? You know, where to aim on the deer? I started drawing pictures. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I had. Uh, I, I was. And, and I, you know, and, and it just really reinforced what they taught in the field before class because they specifically we had a whole you know we had a whole section on on shot placement and you know we had a had they had a deer decoy out there and, and basically i had had i not done that and then had not discussed with you i don't know that i would have placed the shot correctly with a crossbow i mean with a rifle it, to me and you can correct me if i'm wrong i think you have a little more margin for error with a rifle then you have to be a little bit more spot on with a with a you know when you're using a bolt or an arrow but um but yeah i, I mean shot placement to me was my biggest concern going in I, I i the last thing i want to do is wound an animal and and not be able to harvest that animal i mean that that would be you know i, I would have a hard time with that yeah it's it is it is, and, and if it is not, it should be the goal of every single hunter to uh, make the most ethical kill possible. And, and you're spot on. You're exactly right. There is a much larger margin of error with a firearm. Um, if you're shooting a centerfire rifle or muzzleloader with a very well-constructed bullet, it's totally ethical to shoot through the front shoulder. In fact, in some places in the world that I've hunted, they want you to shoot through that front shoulder. Um, and by doing that, what happens is 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 you lose a little meat because the shoulder of the bullet's going in obviously uh, gets a lot of damage, but it it has an effect on the animal that is catastrophic. Um, so yes, uh, where you can't go through that shoulder um, with any kind of archery equipment, short of safari grade Cape Buffalo equipment, um, you know you can with a rifle. So yeah, shot placement. Uh, with archery equipment is, I mean, it's primary. You, you can't get away from it. So we're ready to go. Um, we have a link up point, and uh, 
I kind of told you what the plan was. Uh, my very good friend and, and who's also a retired veteran, uh, Sergeant First Class retired, James Eubanks, um, helped me scout out. And um, actually, he hung the stands. <laughs> he helped me scout out the spot. Uh, it was a spot I kind of knew already from hunting it myself. It was on public land. Uh, we could park at his house and um, basically walk down a huge hill to a creek bottom and then up to a travel corridor and then on the hog back uh, of this, you know, small spur that came off a major ridge, um, James had uh, uh, hung a lock-on stand above a ladder stand that we've used in in the past. So we had a double set where you could sit in your own stand and I could sit above you and kind of watch uh, a different angle. Um, so that was the plan. We would meet at James's. Uh, and uh, we get our gear ready, we go down the hill, and we get set up, and, you know, it was a good plan. <laughs> it really was a good plan. The weather cooperated, and and uh, we got set. What would you think uh, of that first hunt, man? Just tell the story. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was, we were coming down the hill, and gosh, it was, uh, I don't know, early in the morning, and dark out had the headlamps on and and i i was just super excited i mean i was probably you know, if you were to get my excitement meter out it was probably like pegged out uh, you know just just excited to be doing it and felt like i was finally getting to accomplish something that i had wanted to do uh, so we get out there and get in the stand get all set up and uh and yeah it was you're sitting there and you're you're kind of hearing the woods come to life and and that that's part of the experience is being able to just see nature come alive as as the sun comes up and uh and yeah so it was it was great you know we were up in the stand and and you did a did a nice job of of kind of coaching me through here's what you need to do and and, some of the things hey I, I was extremely excited, so I had to, you know, calm the nerves down. I was a bit uh, jittery at times, you know, but I just didn't want to miss the opportunity. So uh, that that uh, that was a pretty pretty exciting morning. Yeah, it it um it was one of those mornings where you get into the stand, and you know everything you did up to that point, the winds in your favor. You hung the stand right so the sun's not in your eyes. You know, the sun's at your back. It's kind of in the eyes of the animal as the animal's come. And, of course, we were in pretty deep forest, uh, you know, on the public land there. But uh, everything was going right. And um, here comes a buck right down the ridge. He takes, you can't see him because he's coming in from behind you, but I can see him because he's coming right, you know, on an angle. And the way the stands uh, were set up, you know, and, and I highly recommend this for everybody. Anybody sets a double set is, you know, set, set the stands about 90 degrees off each other where you can kind of see the same area, but you can cover more visually without getting up and moving and drawing attention to yourself. So I whisper, hey, man, there's a buck coming. How'd you feel then? Yeah, the the, um, the heart rate went up exponentially at that point and uh i was i was pretty excited about that uh i mean they i've heard people talk about buck fever i don't know that i quite had that but it was it was definitely an exciting moment buddy i was so excited for you i was it's for anybody out there that's listening to this that's not a new hunter that's a mentor 
if you don't get more excited when your mentee's about to shoot something than you do when you're shooting something, I think there's something wrong with you. Buddy, I don't get buck fever. Joel, I don't get it. I've never got it. Now, I do on some animals, but not on deer. I just haven't. On bears, I get a little bit of fever. Buddy, I was fired up for you. I'm like, oh, my God, this is coming together. This buck read the script. So he's coming down the ridge. The last I ranged him was 14 yards, and I am frozen perfectly still. And what would you do? Yeah, so um, this is where the story story gets kind of sad. But, uh, yeah, so I reach up and I turn the scope on. So I turn the scope on. And there was that part of me that just wanted to make sure that the scope was actually on. And I, I don't, it was just like I didn't trust myself. I just didn't want to, you know, didn't want to screw this up, right? So I moved the crossbow just slightly, hit hit the edge of the stand with the crossbow as I'm trying to look through the scope to make sure it's on. And as soon as I as soon as I ding the stand, that was it. I mean, the, you could hear him run off, and it was that close that I could hear him just scamper off, and I'm just like, man. And but I, I wasn't too disappointed because I mean I was disappointed that we didn't didn't get this i didn't get to see him and, and all that but but the, the other part of me was like man there is actually deer here so this is a good thing right so you know we're not all is not lost i'm not gonna not gonna lose hope at this point we're gonna you know we're gonna continue on and, and hopefully there's more where that came from so yeah i i think what you did every hunter's done you know and honestly um there's two of us in the stand it, he definitely stopped in his tracks, threw his head up when that metallic click happened, um, when the crossbow touched the shooting rail, whatever. But, you know, when you have two people in stands, twice the, twice the movement, twice the smell, it's hard to say what made him 100% run off. It did alert him. I, like you, thought, eh, you know, it's early. And honestly, he was a two and a half year old, small eight point, but for a, he was way better than my first buck. So I was fired up. I'm like, this is better than my first buck. This is going to be awesome. Um, so, um, that would have been over and done with by like 745 in the morning. (laughs) And it just didn't happen. Um, we sat there the rest of the day, uh, or the rest of the morning until about lunch. Um, then we climbed down. Uh, and I had a whole different plan for the afternoon, which I'll touch on here in a second. But then we climbed down, and when we got to the ground, I started, you know, showing you why James originally set that ladder stand there and why we thought it would be a good stand um, to hunt. It wasn't just the travel corridor on the ridge above us and, and the deer trail coming down the spur. We're sitting on top of, like, three scrapes and two rubs, right? Yep. So, um, so lesson learned, um, we went up, we had some lunch and then, um, you know, it's my opinion and you and I had talked that really one of the biggest barriers to deer hunting is to care for the animal after the shot. It's not just the hunting portion and the woodsmanship it takes to kill one. It's what do I do when I have an animal on the ground? So I desperately wanted, um, to get you a shot opportunity so we could do the hands-on of field dressing skinning and deboning an animal um so we went and had lunch and you know i'd already told you that the afternoon hunt was going to be over bait 
that we were going to be hunting over a corn pile, making a sincere effort to put a deer on the ground for that portion of the learning process. So how'd you feel about hunting over bait for the afternoon? Yeah, I, um, I think that it, from, from my perspective, it's like you said, I mean, I, I wanted to really learn to go through the whole process. Right. I mean, that was kind of the goal. And I mean, it, it, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I think that, um, you know, for me, it was, um, you know, the, the end goal for us was, was to try and get through the process and understand how, how I could, you know, because to me, the intimidating part is, is actually the, the butchering in the field and that, and, and trying to, you know, so, so you, you've harvested, you've harvested a deer, you've killed a deer, it's down and, and now what do you do with it? Right. So from, from that perspective, you know, I had no problem you know, hunting over bait and, and really no issue with that. Yeah. Well, and, and I was happy that you didn't. Um, there's there's some people who do. And, you know, in areas uh, in Kentucky, our deer herd is significantly overpopulated. And we were hunting in one of those areas. And that still doesn't make it a sure thing by any stretch of the imagination. But hunting over bait does a few things. Um, it, it There's some negatives to it. But for the hunter's experience and for the opportunity to harvest, and then the opportunity where you may be that rifle hunter that because there's only three weekends in the rifle season uh, and you could only get two days off on those three weekends, honestly, um, to ask you to hunt in the traditional style where you scout and you do all that work and only give you two days if you're just a rifle hunter, that's where that hunting over bait really really helps and honestly i've had some arguments with people in the past and and i ask them i say are you a fisherman and they say yeah I say so so you just throw a hook and they say excuse me i say you just throw a hook and they say okay i get your point you're fishing without bait you're hunting without bait so there's there's pros and cons to it i was happy you wanted to do it i was really really happy you wanted to do it i was shockingly disappointed that we didn't get an opportunity that afternoon and i'm sorry buddy i am sorry yeah yeah, and and I, and I think if you have permission, and you're on you're on private land, and you're you're hunting over bait, you know, that, that or you're hunting a deer, you know, legally over bait, you know, no issue with that. I I think for me personally, like when I look down the road at what I want to do going forward, you know, after the mentorship and and all that, you know, I I don't know that. You know, I mean, that probably wouldn't be the end goal for me, you know, uh, for the most part. I mean, I think it would be, you know, trying to, to really get out in, on public land and, and try to harvest a deer, you know, using traditional methods. Yeah, and I, I, I totally think that that is possible to do every year. I, I want to clarify something. We left the public land, um, climbed all the way back out of that um, deep creek bottom, which was another reason I was super happy that the department assigned me a fit, strong mentee like you. And I'm not trying to give you a bunch of compliments, but honestly, that was our best spot, me and my buddy James. And had they given me somebody that was, um, you know, impaired, we'd have had to change up the entire program. So the fact that you're fit and strong, getting down to that stand and back out on public was a huge, huge good deal for us. But after lunch, we actually went and hunted on a on a small farm adjacent that was private. So I want everybody to 
I don't want anybody to think that we threw some corn out on, on public. That's absolutely <laughs> not. That's absolutely not the case. We moved to a new spot. Um, it got really, really warm in the afternoon, and the wind was circling and howling. And so for anybody that hunts deer, once it gets super hot, um, especially uh, late October, they're wearing their they're wearing their winter fur coat, so they don't like to move a lot in the late afternoon, which is the hottest part of the day, you know, 3.30, 4.30, 5.30. Um, so we went to the private. We hunted over corn in the afternoon, and we did not get it done. Um, what were you feeling like driving home? Were you disappointed? Were you upset? And I think I, I wasn't disappointed at all. I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty pleased with, with the day uh, and what I had learned. Because again, that was that was the goal is, is to learn and take a step forward. And yeah, I wasn't disappointed. I, I tell you, what, I was pretty wiped out. I I'd not slept much the night before because it was like <laughs> it was like a kid going to Disney World, I think. But uh, yeah, I had and we I'd been up since three o'clock. So when I hit the when I hit the the bed that night, I was pretty whipped and it just you know, just being out there. And I think also my adrenaline was high all day. I just you know I was so you know, excited. I think if I could go back and do it over again, I'd probably relax a little more and just, uh, enjoy more of the experience. But, uh, I was just, man, I was on alert. I was ready to, to, uh, to get it done. Yeah, you were. And, and that was another joy, uh, was that, you know, you had your head in the game the whole time. The, the mistake of, of making a sound with the crossbow is something we all do all the time. I've done it a hundred times. Um, so that really wasn't a deal breaker. I mean, it's just that buck was a little bit on edge. Had he been, uh, had it been closer to the rut, uh, he wouldn't have paid any attention if you rang a dinner bell. Probably, you know, he was coming down there. He would have been coming down that ridge with his nose to the ground, looking for a lady. But um, the one thing I would say, um, you know, I appreciate um, that the department's crossbows have lighted reticles. Uh, for me, I like to use the KISS method. I even use the KISS method as a combat infantryman. You know, I, I keep it simple, stupid. Um, because when things um, go wrong or your adrenaline is really high, the most simple and fundamental methods always work. So, you know, the crossbow that I got to take mentees hunting has a traditional just regular scope. Now that's not going to be the very best in low light conditions, but you're not going to have to worry about whether the, the scope's on or not. And I've had that same phobia. That's why I don't have a lighted reticle on my turkey gun or any of my firearms. I don't want to, you know, get to the moment of truth and my, I can't see my reticle, which was what you did. And I totally get it. Um, so... I felt like doo-doo going home. I'm like, gosh, dang it. I wanted to get Joel a deer. But we parted ways, kind of committed to that we would keep this relationship and we would continue to work together until you are ready to absolutely 100%, um, you know, take it and run with it. So, you know, would you feel about continuing the relationship and, and moving forward working together? Yeah, I think that's one of the key things really as a new hunter trying to learn this is having somebody like yourself to to come alongside and and show the way i mean i i really appreciate it i mean i can't tell you enough you know how much you know just taking the time to to do what you're doing and also you know just whether it's uh, us meeting to scout or whatever um 
and then I'm looking forward to obviously you know going back out in the fall. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think it's essential uh, from from at least from my standpoint that you know you have a mentor and 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 be able to to lean on somebody because it. <laughs> It, it, it can be intimidating. It, it really can if you haven't done it and you haven't showed, had anybody to show you the way. So. Yeah, and, and, and you know, honestly, I, got, I have had people ask me, you know, about my success elk hunting, and, and I'm going to tell you, had I not run into a retired Vietnam vet um, who's originally from Pennsylvania, but, um, you know, he retired – as an outfitter he was a vietnam vet and then he was an outfitter for decades well he retired and he and i became friends and i started going out west to hunt with him he taught me everything i wouldn't know you know my butt from my head if i didn't have a mentor and i just feel like it's you know something that we just all got to pay that forward and, and give back you know you're a perfect example of what they call late onset hunter um, and you're an articulate guy, and as such, the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife's R3 department asked you to go to the National Wild Turkey Federation convention and kind of talk about your experience. Um, how, how'd that go? Yeah, so that was that was pretty exciting. I, you know, it's kind of one of those things when you look back two years, you can't imagine that you would actually do that because I had no idea what I was doing in in, in regards to hunting. I, I didn't know a whole lot. So I went down there and um, the, uh, the just met with the folks that were putting on one of the sessions for at the Na- National Wild Turkey Federation convention. And uh, so I got up there and, and it was just painful discussion. So it was really easy the way they did it. But I uh, wanted to just you know give my background and uh, and talk about you know, as a as a 46 year old guy, you know, why does a 46 year old guy all of a sudden now want to become a hunter or be a part of this? Because the audience was mostly our three coordinators from around the country and they were either with state agencies or with uh, private organizations such as National Wildlife Turkey Federation or Backcountry Hunters, Anglers, you know, those types of organizations. And so it was kind of neat because I, you know, it was myself and there was uh, uh, an R3 coordinator up there and then another person that was uh, you know, on the panel. And we got to tell our stories and it was kind of neat for me because the, the, the nature of the questions that were coming from the R3 coordinators were like, man, they were all in. They were they were really enthusiastic about asking questions like, hey, how do you, you know, what about this? You know, how did how do we reach people like you? What can we do to encourage you know, other people like yourself that have a, have a normal job, have a family, all that to, to become part of this hunting that, that we all love. And, and so it was a, it was a really neat experience. I mean, that, that event is just, a, it's just off the chain as far as like the, the people and, and all the exhibits and all that stuff. But, but you know, that, that was a real rewarding experience. I really enjoyed doing that and going and telling my story. So hopefully, you know, some of these other or organizations will, will be able to maybe use some of that to, to recruit and, um, you know, bring some more hunters into the, into the fold. Yeah, I'm super. I'm super happy for you, man. Um, when you told me you were doing that, I was like, "Oh, they, yep, that is the way to do it, man." You, you, too often we listen to the experts all day long. You know, it, it's like, 
um, there comes a time when the person that's, you know, it's, it's like the old Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena. It's the person that's in the arena. It's the person that's doing it whose opinion matters. You know, so the fact that they had a panel um, that the department got you all the way down to Nashville for the Wild Turkey Federation convention and that as a new hunter, quote unquote, the man in the arena, you got to tell your story. I think it's fabulous, man. Just fabulous. Um, so we committed uh, as a team that the next thing we would do is, uh, once it was about the time of year that the bucks were starting to shed their antlers, that we would go scouting. And uh, right before COVID-19 shut the world down, um, we went scouting. Uh, and you seemed ready for that. You were ready to go, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I was ready to – I was ready to social distance uh, before it came out, before it was required. So. <laughs> yeah, and so we did a little e-scouting. Um, we were both looking at, you know, Google Earth and Department Wildlife Management Area maps and, and all that, and we had a discussion. And one of the things we discussed was the public land that's closest to you in Lexington. And you said, well, I'd like to look at that. And I said, well, if you're willing to drive an extra half an hour – I'll show you one that's not going to have a full parking lot. And so that was the first thing we did. Um, what would you think about the logic with the e-scouting and, you know, where to go in general? Yeah, I thought that was a great suggestion because I, I would have done probably like every other person in my town go to the closest WMA that I could, I could go to. And I didn't really think through what if you show up there and there's 10 cars in the parking lot and so how are you going to navigate that and so i think by looking at and, and what we we looked at is is some different options right so so if you get here and there's there's a car or there's there's a, three more trucks then we have another option and so that was kind of the thought process that i i, I that i hadn't thought of because hunting public land you you have to have obviously you want to have a plan to, to harvest the animal, but you also have to have a plan to deal with potential hunting pressure as well. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on, man. I'm so glad that, that you remember that and took that lesson to heart. You know, you constantly have to have a plan A, B, and C. And when I hunt out West, I actually have a plan D and E, um, you know, and the area that we went to, um, three counties meet in that general uh, half an hour radius there's like a you know a tri-county area there and about four wmas um within a half an hour so it's about an hour drive for you and about an hour and change for me just to get into that vicinity but then once we're there we had three or four different wma options so the first one i took you to um and i'm not going to do this for everybody so if you're listening to this podcast and I take you hunting, don't look me in the eye and say, will you help Joel like that? Well, Joel's Joel's my first real deer hunting mentee in years that is not a member of my family um, that I'm trying to show how to public land hunt. Joel, I took you to one of my honey holes. And please don't say the, the WMA on the show. But what did you think about how far it was from the parking lot to get to the honey hole? Yeah, I mean, we had to, we had the hike, a pretty good while. I mean, you'd have to be pretty fit to get into where we were, we were headed into. 
and uh, it wasn't it, the terrain. It wasn't I would call it extreme, but it was um, it was it could be challenging. It, is it terrain that you think someone would drag a deer out of? If you could drag a deer out of there, I'd say you probably need to go and uh, sign up for uh, like a uh, to, to be like a cage fighter or something because man, you're <laughs> extremely strong and extremely fit. Yeah, it's not quite two miles to that spot. Um, you know, it's not straight line distance. If you draw a straight line, it's it's just under a mile. But you know, the way you hike to get to it's some severe left and rights and up and downs and and it's it's about 40 45 minutes with no pack on your back just your binos scouting and you know one of the ways that you can be successful on public is to go that far from the parking lot because you know one of the things that when you and i get a deer on the ground and we will this year come hell or high water um i'm gonna talk you through deboning the meat in the field and using meat bags and packing the meat out in your pack, um, you know, that opens up that just one switch that you throw in your brain that says, I'm not going to try to drag a deer out, opens up immense areas of public um, to you. And it's a Western thought process. It's, it's, it's what, you know, I've done out west for years, you're not going to drag a mule deer or an elk out. You're not going to drag an elk anywhere. But, you know, deboning a whitetail, even a mature buck, which I've done, I guess, three years in a row now in public, um, it's not a light pack out, but it opens up so much more terrain. Um, So we got to the bottom of the hill, and as we're going, we're talking terrain, and and we're kind of talking, you know, hunting and stuff. And we got to the bottom, and I started showing you why it was a honey hole and what did you think yeah i uh i i would have not necessarily picked that out and and what i what i thought was really interesting and again the whole mentality that that you've taken to this is you know basically teach me how to fish right and and so that's the mentality so not only did you know okay here's the spot but here's why it's a spot and, you know, we had the elements that, that is needed for a spot, right? We had food, we had water, there was bedding area close by, there was evidence that there had been bucks in that area. So all of the elements that I would need if I went by myself and I was scouting a piece of property, I, I now know that much better because I, you know, we looked at it not only when we're standing there, but also looked on, on the, uh, you know, we were using Onyx, um, maps and, and so looked at that portion of it to understand, you know, how these, how these elements are coming together and why this is a good spot. Yeah. And, and to hear you now talk about it and articulate that feels good, man. I mean, it is, it is multiple converging terrain features, um, that really turn a, a piece of terrain into something promising, but then you get there and there's, you know, food close by water close by, just like you said. And then we're looking at multiple big trees with rubs from just this past season and a couple of scrapes. And so, you know, because time is of the essence and, you know, we're both, we're we're both, you know, not 
totally unconstrained. I mean, I'm retired, but I got a lot going on. You're still working with a family. I wanted you to have a spot. In my mind, I thought, you know what? Let's take him to a spot for a couple of reasons. One, now you got a spot. You know, you send me a text. Hey, I'm hunting the honey hole. Okay, I'm not going to be there. Um, if you're going to hunt that this year, which I think you are, I'm probably not going to hunt it at all. Uh, I want you to have that as, as a spot so that you got one. Um, but I also didn't want to take you on a piece of terrain scouting for the first time and not have anything to show you, not be able to show you this is what a rub looks like, this is what a scrape looks like, this is why terrain features converge and blah, blah, blah. So we went there first. It was a great piece of deer country. I was super pumped about that. And then we had agreed to go to another spot close by. It looked like it was only 10 minutes away. How'd that work out? Yeah, that that was interesting. I, I think to, to summarize it, I, I found myself uh, overlooking a washed out road and, uh, and, and us looking at each other going, okay, I don't think we're getting in this way. But uh, we were trying to find a an access point that wasn't so obvious that, you know, obviously there were parking lots we could get to, but, but we were looking for an access point that was a little more off the beaten path that would be less likely to have hunting pressure during the season. And, and that, that proved a little more difficult to find. It took us, I don't know, actually it was, looked like it was 10 minutes away. I don't know. What did it take us 45 minutes to find it? I, I don't know. It just seemed like a while. Yeah. And, and you know what, when it takes 45 minutes to find an access point for you on a, on a scouting day, those people that didn't go and scout it and they think they're just going to find it in the dark on their way to hunt it for turkey on their way to hunt it for deer, they ain't going to find it. So yeah, we, we had, I think three failures, three dead end roads before we, one, one of course ended in a substantial water hazard, but, um, we actually found it. We found legal parking area. Um, we got set. We got ready to go, and we started down this ridge line. And what happened? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we saw was a, a beautiful sight. Uh, it's it's the sign of spring, right? We saw turkey. Um, we saw evidence of turkeys all over the place, and uh, and then actually, you know, we're looking at these, uh, you know, where the turkeys had. You know, I guess I, I can't. I'm trying to remember what you technically call it, where they were scraping around and where they're looking for yeah. food, and uh, and then we're, we're look we look out and all of a sudden there's a, there's a ton of jakes coming across and we, you know we get the binoculars out and we can see all these jakes and and so that that was a pretty neat to to see. So especially when we're coming up on turkey season. So yeah, it was really cool, man. I was I was like looking around, I'm like man, I'm not seeing any kind of mass trees. I'm not seeing any kind of food trees. It's basically just you know, junk trees and cedar down this ridge. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's all kinds of evidence of turkeys in here s scratching up through the leaf litter trying to get a hold of bugs. And, you know, last year's uh, whatever's left for them to eat, there really wasn't any acorns. There wasn't any oak trees. <laughs> and I, I freaked out. I reached up and grabbed him. Like, look, 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 look. <laughs> and it was like turkeys everywhere. It was awesome. So... Yeah. Yeah, so that second place we went to is a place neither one of us had ever been to. So wanted to go in <clears throat> to a totally new patch of ground and scout it together. You know, show you how I found, the, not really how, but what I found and where I found a good spot. And then go in blind on the on this next spot. So um, what would you think of scouting blind? What would you think of just going in and checking terrain? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty neat to go in and, and, and we got it just, you know, we got down into the woods and, and off kind of off the beaten path there. And, you know, we we saw some, you know, some good and some nice bedding areas. But, you know, the one thing that, that I noticed or what you pointed out to me is that there wasn't a lot of food source there. You know, that, that the trees in that area, and I, I can't remember the variety of tree that we were seeing, but, but you know, not the type of trees that are going to drop a ton of acorns. And, and so there was, um, and, and the water, I, I don't, from what I recall, there wasn't a whole lot of water source around that area that we were hiking in. And, um, and so, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion that that might not be a great spot to, to hunt whitetail. Yeah, there was a lot of beach, um, a lot of cedar, uh, some shagbark hickory, um, some hackberry, which could be argued as a food source, um, not a primary food source, certainly. Um, but we were trying to kind of circumnavigate a public-private boundary where we were hoping someone had put in food plots and while it's totally ethical to hunt public close to private it's something that you got to consider um and, and really the thought process was is if that person's putting in row crops uh you know corn soybeans or they have a food plot and we're going to hunt public within four or five hundred yards of it it could be beneficial to us um you know and and if that's the case then that's one of the one of the wonderful things that onyx does for you is it gives you that landowner info so god forbid you shoot something on public that runs on the private and you have to get permission to recover your animal but we weren't seeing food we weren't seeing tracks now you did find um some um um, deer hair you know this this time of year they're shedding they're starting to shed their winter fur and i was like man you know joel's pretty switched on he's found some hair um but you're right. There wasn't much there, and it turned out to be a fabulous turkey spot. Uh, yep. But no deer sign. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and and you, you we mentioned onyx. I mean, I would say it, it, anybody's new to hunting, you know that that is a tool that has been like super valuable to me. I mean, as someone who's not or hadn't been in the woods a lot, you know, I was always kind of concerned about getting lost and all that stuff. I mean, that that's that's a tool. There's other mapping tools out there, but um, that that's pretty that's pretty neat. Yeah, and and that and the fields, the private fields, were well marked. They were well marked on our side, the public side, by the department, and literally had some signs I've never seen before that said, "Please respect this private land. Don't cross the fence." Yeah. A little, little department, uh, a fish and wildlife symbol. And um, it was just a hay field. Um, there weren't any. There weren't even any, you know, cattle grazing, and the, and the fence was left a lot to be desired. But it was obvious where the boundary was. And um, I think I came away with, you know, uh, a couple good spots to park. The fact that it was down a, a really rough dead end road, um, and was covered in turkeys. I thought we got a turkey spot, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to visit that in a few weeks. So. Good deal, man. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah, the funny thing about, um, and if I could give anybody advice, and I think I'd talk to you about it, is is, is for turkey hunting, because it's public firearms hunting, um, you got to be a little bit more safety conscious. And, and for me, 
when I get to a spot that I want to hunt on public for turkeys, not a parking lot, an access point, and I get to an access point where it's legal to park my vehicle, and it's usually only legal to park one or two vehicles in those little spots that are, you know, bordering a WMA or bordering a, a portion of the National Forest or a, you know, or a, um, a refuge, um, and someone's car is there, I just respect that that hunter got there before me and I move on. So um, the good thing about um, that area that we looked at was there's within a half an hour of the first parking lot we went to, there's five WMAs. So, you know, um, the technique I would use if you got to your primary spot and there's so many cars, go to your backup spot because we looked at two spots. And um, if there's cars of both of them and you feel like that's no good, what I normally do is I just wait till the sun comes up good and bright and then I start scouting my way in for an afternoon hunt. So that's the good part about that region we went to. Um, so how you feeling about solo turkey hunting now? A little bit better? I mean, I know you were already kind of experienced because you'd done some, some, you know, um, stub your toe, learn on your own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, feeling much more confident about that. I tell you, I'm, I am, uh, I'm pretty determined this spring. I've got some, you know, with this, uh, with being at home and, and, uh, you know, the social distancing and all that. Now I'm, I am ready to get out in the woods and I'm, I'm going to take a few vacation days and, and really uh, hit it hard this spring. So if, uh, if we don't kill a turkey, it, it's not for, I'm going to be for lack of effort this spring. So, well, when you text me that turkey pick, I hope I'm by myself because I'm going to jump up and down and squeal like a 12 year old girl who just got her favorite present or something. I'm going to be so psyched for you when you finally get your turkey. Um, you know, <laughs> it's funny when you become a mentor man it's like i want him to go i want him to win um but uh um i think there is a barrier between small game hunting as a new or a late onset hunter and big game hunting that is intimidating i I feel like after talking to you and hunting deer with you and then scouting with you i feel like you're 100 percent ready for turkeys I still feel like, and I want your opinion, where, where you, I know what I think, but I want your opinion. Where do you think you're at with big game? Where do you think you're at with deer hunting? Yeah, I I think that uh, for me, deer hunting, um, you know, I I would, I I think if I complete that last step with, with you as a mentor, meaning that if we actually, you know, we're going to harvest something this fall, and, and go through that whole pack out process because I, I want the freedom to be able to, to do that on my own. And, and when I say that, I mean, Hey, I'm a guy that, that works and, and has family and all that. So it's hard for me to coordinate with a group of guys to go and, and, and coordinate a hunt. Right. So I want to be able to, Hey, you know what? It's a nice afternoon in October. I'm going to take off the afternoon, take a half a vacation day. And I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the WMA and I sit in a tree and I'm going to sit here till dark. And, and so, and if I harvest the deer and I can take it out by myself, I, I feel like that that's where I want to be. You know, that, that's the, the goal for me right now. And I feel to be able to get there that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to need to, to, to be with you a little bit longer through, you know, so that we can kind of take it to the end and, and get, get there. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, 
first off, I appreciate your honesty because that's that's where I think you're at. I think you're getting the hunting portion. And I think actually people think that's the hard part. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the killing, the harvesting, whatever you want to call it. It's actually getting it done, not wasting the meat you've harvested, and turning the experience into something that you serve your family because that takes it full circle back to what you and your wife talked about. So taking it back to what you and your wife talked about you know, sustainability and knowing where your meat comes from. In that context, do you feel like now, you know, a year, 18 months later, that, that you and your wife's intent is being met through this process? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I fully think so. I've got, um, you know, I, we, we've talked about it and, uh, and she's so, she's so encouraging, you know, she, it's funny because my, uh, my youngest daughter's 13 and, I've, I've went hunting several times, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, just out, uh, when I say several times for me is only like a handful of times. Right. But, but, you know, I come home and say, Hey, what'd you get? You know? And I'm like, ah, nothing this time. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, I, I do think that it's, uh, you know, it, it will satisfy those requirements and, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to, to, um, you know, and just be a, um, I, I, I have the time now. I mean, I've got the extra time and I want to be able to spend it doing those kind of things. And, and that's just the desire that I have. So. Yeah. And, you know, you spoke to a minute ago, the freedom and the confidence to do it yourself and on your own. And there's something primal about that. You know, uh, I understand it when people like to go to deer camp. I understand people like to go to turkey camp, elk camp. You know, there's some security um, in having that whole group and there's some camaraderie and some fellowship, but there's a sense of freedom when you hunt on your own. Would you agree? I agree. I, I, mean, I totally agree. And, and I, don't get me wrong. I would never turn down an opportunity to go with a group, group of guys to go on a, on a hunt or something like that. But, um, for me, you know, I agree with you that there is freedom and just, just having the ability to go do that or, if, you know, my son's in the military and, and, you know, if he comes home and wants to go do a hunt, you know, and I could take him and we can go do that together. Hey, that, that's all the better. So. Oh, that's on the horizon, brother. Um, is there anything through, you know, I feel like you've, you've accomplished the fundamentals as a new hunter or a late onset hunter. Is there anything you would tell, um, the old you looking back, um, to you know when you started doing your research and started trying to do this completely on your own now a year 18 months later what would you tell yourself because that's what a new hunter would want to hear what would you tell yourself yeah i I would i think three things come to mind and uh, i think there's no bad trips to the woods i um i felt like that my first couple times out i was kind of wasting my time but I really wasn't because every time I go out, I would go a little farther and I would maybe learn a little something different. And, uh, and obviously it, it, you know, it, it just takes, takes a little time when you're going from you know, basically nothing to trying to, to learn this. The, the next, the, the next thing I would say, manage your expectations. Um, I started following a whole bunch of people on social media that were these, I mean, I would consider them very accomplished hunters. 
and uh you know i was you know it was it was funny because last um it was two years ago it was deer season and um and i was seeing you know it was opening day of gun season and i'm seeing all these pictures of, of all these bucks being harvested and, and all this stuff and i'm like man i was just extremely envious and and i would go out and not you know again the handful of times i've been out you know not ha- not see anything right and I think managing the expectations. And then, and then finally, you know, I think this goes in line with what I just said. The other two points is, is, is have fun with it, you know, just, just relax and, and have a good time with it and, and do it the way you want to do it. And, um, and just enjoy the process. It, enjoy being out in nature. It, it's a lot of times, we, we, you know, as a, at least for me, you know, I would put the angle as, as the, you know, just harvesting the animal is, is the ultimate thing, right? And and that's the goal. But but there's you know, sm- stop and smell the roses, enjoy the time in the woods, enjoy the the time without a cell phone, and 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 all of the other things that come with day to day life. You know, just just enjoy the process. Wow, um, <laughs> I don't even have a way to amplify that. Everything you just said. Um, speaks volumes about who you are and it also speaks volumes about uh, um, why the department picked you to go to the wild turkey federation and and talk about your journey Um, because i I couldn't agree more with everything you just said after you know um, i'm pretty much in my 35th year of hunting Um, so a couple quick you know and end of the show questions just to kind of hammer home um, a few points for someone who might be looking at this one, do you feel like your journey has been, you know, revolutionary or, or was it, um, kind of one of those things where you had an epiphany and thought, Oh, this isn't that intimidating. I can do this. I mean, what barrier that was stopping you at first, although you're a very resourceful guy, do you feel like there was an intimidation factor? Do you feel like there was some expectations um, to accomplish the mission, i.e. harvest an animal? I mean, now looking back, the barrier to entry, do you feel like that bar is, is really high or really low? Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, looking back and talking about barrier to entry, what comes to mind for me is, you know, where to hunt, right? It's, it's, so, and, and, and I have all the respect in the world for people that have property that they either lease or they own or whatever, and it's private land and they, you know, do a lot to, to harvest their animals there. I no, I mean, nothing against those people. Right. But in the past, you know, I've mentioned that, Hey, you know, I, I went out, I went out hunting this weekend. Where'd you go? Oh, I went on this WMA. Oh man, you get this look, you know, from some, Oh, I would never go to a WMA. You know, public land, you know, only have private land, you know, that's, there's no animals on that and this and that. And, and it seemed like it was almost like discouraging when you talk to an experienced hunter that had all this access to, to private land that, that really wasn't, you know, that encouraging. And, and again, I'm not talking down to anybody. I'm just saying that that was just my perception. And, and so it was like, almost, I thought, man, where am I ever going to find a place to hunt? You know, how am I going to do this? You know? Uh, and, and, we're fortunate in Kentucky. I feel like that, and I, I lived in Florida as well, but, you know, I, th- I feel like, you know, in Kentucky, we do have a lot of public land access, you know, and, and they're, you know, 
there's a lot out there that you can, you know, try to hunt on. And that to me was, was a barrier, um, initially. Yeah. And that is generally speaking, the number one barrier that is, um, illustrated, uh, by new hunters or even, you know, moderately experienced hunters is access. And that is one of the reasons, you know, that, um, I'm a huge fan of backcountry hunters and anglers and, and one of their, you know, fundamental underpinning tenants is, is to increase access. But you're right. In Kentucky, we have 84 um, public hunting areas in the state. Um, and they're a combination of the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources actually owns the WMA. Um, it's a lease. Uh, in fact, the place that I took you to on your on your hunt with me where we almost got that buck that was actually Corps of Engineers property, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers property that is owned by the Corps, but is managed by the department. But anyway, in those 84 different areas, it might not be owned by the department. It might just be an access agreement with a landowner. It doesn't matter. There is plenty of opportunity. And if you're willing to share, which we were all taught how to do in elementary school, um, and you're willing to be respectful and you're willing to meet new people and all of the other things we were taught to do in elementary school about relationships, then you can really enjoy public land. And I've met some of the coolest and some of the craziest characters in my life on public land. Um, so, um, you know, uh, I, I, I owe you, uh, for bringing up access because that was, I, I hadn't planned that for to be your answer, but I'm so glad it was your answer because I really feel like we needed to address it. And the last question I have for you before we kind of wrap it up is, do you feel like um, the field-to-fork programs that you participated in are worthwhile, and would you encourage people to reach out, contact the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and sign up for those field-to-fork programs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a, uh, a wonderful resource that's uh, – uh, I don't know how many people sign up for these, but uh, both of the classes that I was that I attended as a as a student, and I recently kind of went back this past spring, and you know, quote unquote, you know, you know kind of tried to help a little bit, but um, but you know, it seemed to be pretty full, and uh, you know, got to you know, there's various levels of hunters in there. It was you know, you had the the uh, the mom that was trying to learn to to take her son or and you also had the the guy that's all he's done is deer hunted and, and so he's trying to learn how to turkey hunt or, or whatever so you have the varying degrees of people in there so it's it's kind of for for all levels but but i think they do a wonderful job i mean i, I it's funny because I, I feel like they've gotten better as i as i've gone along and, and attended those and and the, the group at, at Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, I know Becky Wallen, she she heads up the some of those and and you know, her her group and yeah they, they do a great job I mean just basically and, and they bring in quality volunteers that are experienced and accomplished hunters like yourself to to instruct and and provide insight and all that and um, you know I, I really didn't understand going into it when we when my wife and I were having these conversations and I decided to attend a field to fork class that, you know, I kind of went into it with why are they doing this? Okay. What, what is, what is in it for, why would they spend dollars on having these field to fork classes? And it goes back to hunter recruitment. Um, it's, uh, you know, what recruitment retention and, and, uh, uh, 
reactivation. Yeah. And and so, you know, why would they do that, right? And, and I didn't realize until I went to the first field, the fort class, that, you know, the number of hunters continues to decline. And, and why is that? Because if I'm an existing hunter, why would I want new hunters to come in here? And it, and it was it was really educational on how why the big picture of this is that you know we don't we want to have more hunters so that there there is funding to support land access and that my kids, my grandkids, and all and all that can have this long term. And uh, it's a neat thing that we have here in, in Kentucky as well as in, all over the United States. So, yeah, that, that's been a neat – the conservation aspect of it and all that is a, is a whole other subject. But, uh, but yeah, I learned all that through the class and, and through just, you know, um, you know, being a part of this. So. Yeah, that's excellent, brother. Is there anything else you, you wanted to talk about on the podcast that I didn't ask or we didn't have an opportunity to discuss? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a question to you. I mean, what what would you tell what would you tell a person who has been hunting for 30 years, and, and what what would it be in it for them to to mentor someone that is is a 40 something year old man or a woman that wants to get into hunting? I mean, what what would you say to that person? Man, I didn't know you were gonna ask me a question. Um, <laughs> flipping the script, Joel. Um, so here's the thing, man. And I don't want to sound egotistical when I say this, but here's, here's just the facts. Uh, there comes a point in a hunter's life where there isn't a new mountain to climb. Um, you know, I, I am to the point in my elk hunting career where, I am super happy, uh, even though I'm, you know, four or five miles deep on the west slope of the front range and and a cow elk comes in archery range. I'm super happy. The arrow flies, and I, I take my fabulous meat and my elk ivory's home. I don't need to kill a big bull and thump my chest. I, I'm really to the point now where I'm out there for the experience, and that's a that's kind of a jaded thing people say it when they fail oh well you know we didn't kill anything but i'm out here for the experience i really am my soul is fed by getting out and doing that what i found out here in the last probably five or six years is that joy that i had when i harvested my first turkey when i harvested my first bull when i harvested my first real serious you know 10 12 point buck that uncontrolled and unadulterated joy can still be felt when your mentee does it. I mean, I helped uh, a 15 year old girl this year um, to kill her first buck. Uh, she hunted with her father and killed a doe before never killed a buck. And um, I mean, I spent serious time setting this up and uh, I danced like nobody was looking when she shot that buck, she shot a mature eight point buck, dropped him in his tracks during rifle season. She was crying. I was dancing. So what I would say is to anybody out there who's, you know, um, accomplished pretty much all of their hunting goals, but you really can't live without it. You still got to be out there. It's in you. It's somehow in your blood. It's in your DNA. One of the ways to put your finger on that joy that you had 
when you killed your first bull, your first buck, your first tom turkey, is to help somebody else do it. And um, it, it really, really, I mean, I, I'm seriously thinking about how I'm going to get you your first deer this year. I'm thinking about it like I used to think about getting my first deer. And that being awake at 3.30 in the morning, even though your alarm's set for 4.30, is happening because I'm taking Joel. And that's what I would say to those people. Those people who need to be reactivated because there's nothing left to kill. They've been to deer camp for the last 35 years. Take a 15-year-old kid or take a 46-year-old guy who's trying to learn. And see the joy and the excitement in their face. And it won't be old for you anymore. It'll be brand new again. So that's what I would say, man. That's great. That's 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 awesome. So, yeah, I'm I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go hunting now. So, <laughs> as long as nobody cancels turkey season, buddy, I think there's yeah, yeah. at least one or two days. At least I've actually I'm waiting for you to. I know you're planning to hunt that that public that we scouted. That's that's loaded with turkeys, but I am waiting for you to call me to be like, hey, dude, and I, and I'm seeing what I seeing what private access i can come up with to see if you know if it comes to the point where the turkey season ended and you haven't pulled trigger yet so i got your back on turkey season um awesome so yeah. i appreciate you dude this relationship continues um and uh you know stay safe in these crazy times um, one of the best places that we can all be is outdoors where the air is fresh and clean um you know i would encourage anybody listening to the podcast um that you know uh, as long as our public lands and public waters are not shut down, the same people that you're sitting in the house with, uh, your social distancing as a family unit, take your family out in the woods or on the water and enjoy it and reconnect with nature. Um, it is something that absolutely helps with the stress of this crazy time that we're in. Um, Joel, I can't thank you enough for being a guest, man. You're articulate. You're you're an accomplished guy and before too long we're gonna we're gonna say that you've had a tom turkey and a, and a deer in your freezer too brother thank you appreciate yeah. it yeah absolutely so thanks everybody for listening uh this has been the outdoor mentor podcast um if you are a new hunter or fisher and um you find yourself in the position that joel's in um i am not just doing this podcast uh I am actually dedicating uh, myself as a retired Army officer with a lot of time on my hands, uh, volunteer for some charities and stuff, and volunteer at a school. But uh, I spend most of my time out in the woods hunting and fishing, and I am more than welcome to help anybody that uh, is starting out like Joel. Um, can't help everybody, but I'm going to help anybody that I can. So uh, thank you for listening. If uh, you find yourself in a position where you need a mentor, you can reach out to me. Um, my email is ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, ranger, at theslowhunt.com. So ranger at theslowhunt.com. Send me an email. Um, I'm happy to say we actually have a sponsor for this podcast. We've only had three of them, and we already have a sponsor. And that sponsor is Walter at Louisville Toppers. Um, Walter's uh, put... Tono covers, camper caps, ladder racks, running boards, light bars, you name it. He's put stuff on my trucks for the last 10 years. I trust him implicitly. He is a super good Christian dude. Um, you really, really can't beat Walter at Louisville Toppers. 
Um, if you go to uh, Louisville Toppers and see Walter to get some stuff done on your vehicle and you mention Colonel Mike Abel and this podcast, The Outdoor Mentor, you will get a discount. Uh, Louisville Toppers is located at 4040 Preston Highway in Louisville. And you can find them online at www.louisvilletoppers.com. All one word, louisvilletoppers.com. This podcast is part of the Slow Hunt LLC. And remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Thanks for listening. One, two, one, two.